Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 12. Tonight we're going to finish up the third part of the message, Star Wars. It's now been three weeks since uh, we've discussed the other two parts of the sermon. So we're going to have to review a few things, and I want to refresh your minds about what happened in the first part of the story. We're in a very intriguing part of Revelation, because in this chapter, there are thousands of years of human history that are rolled into just a few short verses. And this tells about a conflict that began, well, it's been going on since the very first act of creation. We're talking about a cosmic war. It's a battle that takes place over the entire theater of the universe. And that's why we've called it Star Wars. And the characters in the conflict could indeed be called stars. Uh, not, not stars. They don't have their names on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. But they are uh, stars. The Bible refers to them as stars. And these are angels. And two of the main characters in this story stand at opposite ends of the angelic spectrum. They are majestic creatures with unimaginable power. One is the determined enemy of righteousness. And the other is a mighty defender of God's glory and its holiness. One is Lucifer, who is the morning star. He was prideful and he was lifted up in his pride and he thought that he should be higher than God and should even have God's authority. The defender of righteousness is Michael the archangel. And he's known in scripture as the friend of God's people, the champion of God's people. And these are two mighty angels that control very powerful armies. One of them is evil and the other one is holy. And so this chapter is about their struggle. And one of them gets cast out and the other remains firm and carries out God's promises to deliver his people. Now this evening, we're going to read the entire chapter. That's why it's going to take us just a little bit to get through the sermon tonight. I want to read the entire chapter so that we get the picture of where we are and then we'll do a little bit of reviewing and then we'll get into the last part of the message. So if you'd stand with me, please. Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 1. Revelation 12, verse number 1. And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. 
And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil has come down unto you having great wrath because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time, and times and half a time, from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. And the dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another time to come into your house, and we're privileged to open up the Word of God, and we just pray, Lord, you'd speak to our hearts through the message tonight and give us understanding of your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I read the entire chapter so that we could see the four principal characters that are in this story. The first one is the woman, and this woman represents Israel. Uh, She is the chosen nation of God, and she stands out above all the other nations of the world. And redemptive history is very much concerned with this woman. And that's because that it's through Israel that Christ came. The struggle that we see here, part of this, is the struggle of Israel and Christ. And that's one of the main, uh, Israel and Christ against Satan. And that's one of the main underlying themes of the chapter. Christ is the second character in the chapter. He's the man-child that the woman travailed in great pains to bring into the world. Then the third character is Satan. He's the uh, angel Lucifer who down through the history of the world, has fought vigorously against the man-child and consequently against the woman, Israel, because she is the one that brought the child into the world. And then the fourth character is Michael the archangel. His name means one like God. And he is a holy elect angel and one that I believe is uh, probably the counterpart of Satan and equal to him in power. So these are the four characters that are involved in the struggle of chapter 12. Now, very briefly, I just want to rehearse what we've discussed in the first two messages. We covered a lot of material, so I can't go into detail. But we began with the regalia of Satan. That was number one, the regalia of Satan. Satan is Lucifer, the morning star, and he was created as one of the holy angels. He was a staggeringly beautiful creature. He was the exalted one. In fact, the scriptures call him the anointed cherub that covered which probably means that he was the angel who was responsible, probably a chief angel, responsible for guarding the holiness of the throne of God. Lucifer was a magnificent creature, and in his magnificence he became prideful, in his beauty he was prideful, and so he decided that he should have more power and authority than God. And so he began to defy God, and at one point he sinned and entered into rebellion against God. So secondly, we talked about the rebellion of Satan. Satan was not content to serve God. And there are many people who believe that uh, Satan was sort of stewing under the surface, if we wanted to use terms that we could understand, until God decided that he would create man. 
And man became the crowning act of God's creation, which meant that God would lift man above the angels, and then the angels would become not only the servants of God, but they'd also become the servants of men. And so many think that that stretched Lucifer to the boiling point, you might say. And it was the creation of man that actually sent him over the edge and caused him to go into rebellion against the Creator. I believe that verse number 4 of the text tells us that there is one-third of all the angels that followed Satan in that rebellion. And those angels were thrown out of their service to God. And so they are the evil angels, and they're the ones who helped Satan in the world today. And most commonly, we know them as demons. Then thirdly, we discussed the region of Satan. And that is, where is Satan now? He was cast down from his position in heaven, but he wasn't denied access to heaven. Uh, Satan was not released to go into hell or relegated to hell, and he didn't become the keeper of hell. He's not in hell now, and he never has been in hell. Uh, Satan is free to roam the earth, and he flits and flirts about the stars of God even at this moment, and he also has access to the throne of God. Uh, He's certainly not a welcome guest there, and they don't roll out the red carpet for him. But his access, or his permission to enter into heaven, has not yet been fully revoked. And so he can go anywhere that he wants. Except I don't think that he goes to hell. He doesn't want to go there, and that's because he has no control there. Hell will be the place of his torment, and so he has no interest in being there. And so he spends all of his time, all day, all night, accusing God and his people, and he sends his demons to afflict God's people. And that's what Satan's doing now. When Satan was cast down from his position, he immediately went into persecution mode, and he began to afflict God's people, and of course that is the people of Israel. And God promised that there would be a Messiah that would come through him, and so Satan channeled all of his energy into stopping the Messiah from coming into the world. And so he afflicted Israel all throughout her history until Jesus came. And there were times in the history of Israel when Satan stood within a hairbreadth, you might say, of destroying the line of Christ, destroying the kings of Israel. There came down to times when there was only one person that was left in the royal line, and Satan came that close to being able to destroy the Christ. And then there were uh, times such as the birth of Christ when Satan was there, And he was close enough that King Herod was only seven miles away when Jesus was born, waiting for the wise men to return with instructions about where he might be able to find the Christ and to kill him. Now, Satan knows that if he is successful in just defeating one promise of God, if he was successful in defeating Christ and coming into the world, then all of God's plans and purposes would collapse into a heap of rubble. And so all throughout history, Satan has been at this. He's relentless, and he's still pursuing to this very hour. Uh, Now that we have the church, Satan is working as hard against God's church as he was against the nation of Israel. But as we go through the 12th chapter, uh, we, we sort of move at warp speed, to use Star Trek terminology. Uh, we, we move at warp speed through history until we come to a date that's yet in the future. And this is a time when God begins to wind down human history. And at that time, there is an all-out war that breaks out in heaven. Satan still has access there but this time, he's, this time he's going to be removed permanently. And so we discussed, fourthly, fourthly, the removal of Satan. The language in verse number 7 suggests that uh, Satan is the instigator of Star Wars. 
It seems like there is some kind of a change that triggers uh, uh, Satan and, and causes him to assemble his entire angelic army. And so he gets into the war mood and he brings all of his demons together. And the thing that some people have suggested that turns the tide, the thing that upsets the status quo, is the rapture of God's people. The Word of God teaches that the last enemy to be conquered is death. And death is conquered when the angel sounds the trumpet and the dead in Christ arise. They come out of their graves and that reinvigorating of those who have died in Christ and the translation of God's saints into the kingdom of God, those that are living, is the signal that the world is about to draw to a swift conclusion. And so that signals also Satan's final defeat and Christ's ultimate victory over death, hell, and the grave. And so it may be that Satan sees his last opportunity against God slipping away, and so he springs into action to try and prevent the rapture. And so as the people of God are coming up out of their graves, uh, Satan flies off to try and prevent it. But at the same time, Christ dispatches Michael the archangel to defend it. And that makes, I think, a fascinating tale to think, Possibly that as we go up through the clouds on our way to heaven, when God calls us home, that we'll be able to see into the spirit world. And there possibly is a battle going on all around us. Michael fighting against Satan, trying to prevent us from going into the kingdom of God in heaven. So the rapture then is the beginning of the end for Satan. He's thrown out of heaven. The result of that war is he's thrown out of heaven and he no longer has access to the third heaven. He doesn't have access to the second heaven and so he's restricted in his activity to the earth. Verse number 12 says that Satan knows that the end is near and so in great wrath he begins to throw all of his power and his might into his earthly kingdom or what's left of it. Now interestingly... We know that God intends to destroy that as well. Back in chapter 11, we read, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And so Jesus is going to take charge of all the world's kingdom, and then finally and forcibly, all nations will be made to bow down before him, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And do you know who's going to be prominent in the kingdom that Christ brings to the world? It will be the nation of Israel, God's chosen nation. Now, Israel has been, a set, a, has been set aside for uh, about 2,000 years now since they first rejected Christ. But shortly before the millennial kingdom comes, Israel will be turned back to God, and it's Israel that will be reestablished in their kingdom, and then Christ will come to rule from the throne of David in Jerusalem. And so, Satan who has spent all of his time fighting against Israel until Christ came, now turns his attention and the full force of his powers against Israel once again to try to uh, stop them from going into the millennial kingdom. The all-out attack happens in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. And that's why it's called the Great Tribulation. And at this time, Satan turns up the heat in his efforts to destroy Israel. And the end of the chapter is the look at that attempt. Now, we're going to move on to finish 
the next part of the story, and we're by no means done with this because we'll come back in next week's lesson and we'll start talking about the career of the Antichrist. And things really uh, begin to get interesting there, I think, as we see some more of the details about how Satan vents his wrath against God and his people. But I want to finish up the 12th chapter with the fifth part of our lesson, which is the results of Satan's defeat. Now, because Satan is not in heaven does not mean that he changes any of his intentions. It's ever been his goal to try and defeat God. But Satan is smart enough to know this, that defeating God does not mean that he has to take God on face to face. All that Satan really needs to do is to defeat one of God's purpose purposes. All that he really needs to do is to change the course of, of one promise or to prevent uh, one promise from coming to pass and all the attributes of God would come crashing down. And this is why that Satan spends so much time with you and me. He can't toe up with God and so he comes against us. And did you know that Satan is smart enough that if he were to take, knows that if he could take one believer out of the hands of God, if he could stop or prevent one believer from entering into heaven, if God failed to keep just one believer that he promised to keep, if Satan could ruin his salvation, then God would be defeated. I don't know why people don't understand that. And you have people who are teaching that there are uh, it's possible for people to fall out of their salvation, and it happens all the time. But the truth of the matter is that if you could lose your salvation, that means that the cross was defeated. The cross of Christ was of no effect, that it's worthless. And if Satan defeats the cross, then he can't be, uh, God can't be God. And so the truth then is you can't fall of your, out, of your, out of your salvation because it was never dependent upon you in any way. And so Satan is a smart theologian, and he knows that salvation is dependent upon God from start to the finish. All of it is in the hands of God. And so then if that one person that God has chosen to salvation failed to be saved, or if one who is saved finally failed to enter into heaven, then God loses. And Satan is smart enough to know that if God is everything in salvation and he defeats one believer, then he has right where God, he has God right where he wants him, uh, he is in control. Now, do you see what that means? The scripture says that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. The Bible says that our names are already written down. And so if one of those does not infallibly come to Christ, God is defeated. And so it's no mystery why we believe in election and predestination and why we believe in the effectual, irresistible call of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it has to be that way because God does not leave any part of salvation to chance. You see, God, reverently speaking, is interested in staying God. And so he ensures salvation from every angle, from the choosing to the calling to the justifying to the glorifying. God does it all. And he doesn't leave one tiny crevice for Satan to get a toehold. Now, where do we get such statements? I mean, did I make this up? No, I didn't make that up. It comes right from the words of the Apostle Paul, among many other places. Here's what Paul wrote, and you know the Scripture well, in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For whom he did for no, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Those verses are about God taking salvation from the top to the bottom, taking it all out of the realm of chance, 
and putting it into the surety of the Savior. And so what happens? Or what are the results of Satan's defeat? Well, something happens with the accused. The accused. Who are the accused? Well, let's start reading here at verse number 9. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. One of Satan's titles is the accuser. Who does he accuse? Who are these? Well, these that are accused are God's redeemed people. Now, I want you to notice in passing verse number 10 that says, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. The word salvation there is not referring to the salvation of our souls. There it means the salvation of creation. All along, we've been talking about that the story of Revelation is about how that Christ will remove the curse from all of the creation. And this is what we see in that particular verse. The curse is in the process of being lifted. God is purging the creation. And so the last, uh, from the last three and a half years of the tribulation until the time that God renovates this earth, God is in the process of lifting that curse. But I want you to look here at what it says. The accuser of our brethren is cast down. Now, what is Satan doing right now? Well, he's accusing us before God. Satan says to God, look at those vile, filthy sinners. They don't deserve to be saved. Look at how many times that they have denied you. Look how many times that their faith doesn't hold up. Look how many times that they sin against you. They don't, they don't deserve to be saved. They don't de- deserve to, be, to stay saved. They deserve to go to hell. And right there is the only time that Satan ever tells the truth. He accuses us, and he's exactly right. We still sin, we profess faith, and there are so many times, though, that we are unfaithful. And I don't know how many times during a day that I have to ask God to forgive me for my unfaithfulness. Satan is telling the truth about this. Uh, I, I, I have to ask God for forgiveness for my unfaithfulness. And so when he makes these kinds of accusations... He's telling the truth. But notice verse number 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. And right there we have it. That is the great confirmation and our surety. They overcome him by the blood of the Lamb. And so every accusation that Satan makes against us is overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Because this was never about anything that I have done or anything that you have done. The blood of the Lamb is the all-sufficient supply of salvation. And so it's not me holding out to the end. It's not the works that I have done. It's not the decisions that I make. It's simply the blood of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ, that's causing me to overcome. And that's what I have all my dependence in. So the blood of the Lamb. And so do you think that God would allow one drop that, of blood that Christ shed to be wasted? And yet how many times have you heard people say that Christ died for everybody that's in hell? I've heard preachers say that. That they're saying that there are people in hell for whom Christ gave his blood, but they just didn't have the good sense to believe. No, thousand times no. That's not the picture that we get from the Scripture. We never get any picture 
of Christ's blood failing to do what intended, what God intended for it to do. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb. It's, it's powerful blood. And it always accomplishes God's intended purpose. Now they say that, that Christ's blood was shed for the redemption of all, but some are not redeemed. And if that happens, that means God is a failure. And in fact, that means that Satan wins. Now I want you to listen to Paul's words in Romans chapter 5. But God commendeth his love toward us. Well, you know, that's not patience there. God commendeth, that means he displayed, he demonstrated, he proved his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now let's break that down just a little bit. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Who did he die for? Well, some say everybody. Everybody who ever lived, Christ died for them. But look at verse number 10. It says, we were enemies. Now that means when we were sinners. And so what happened then when we were enemies and when we were sinners? We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so it says, these for whom Christ died that he commended his love towards were reconciled. They are enemies, they were sinners, but they were reconciled. Now who is Paul talking about? Of course, he's speaking about the redeemed. All that Christ died for are all reconciled, and they will be in heaven. And his blood did that. His blood justified them. And all that he died to save, he justifies. And so there can't be some in hell for whom Christ died. If they are in hell, then Satan wins, and that means that Christ is defeated. But it says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. They're reconciled. And everyone who is reconciled will sit around the throne of God, praising him forever and forever. Because they overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Now, I hope you get the picture there why we say that we are preaching historically accurate Baptist doctrine. And that's the subtitle of our new website, if you've looked at it. Historically accurate Baptist doctrine. And the reason that we preach this is because modern Baptist doctrine is not good enough. They preach a defeated Christ who can only save, if, save a man if that man allows him to be saved or allows himself to be saved. Uh, and there was someone who left a track on our, on our table out there the other day, and in this track it made this statement. God permits man's destiny to depend on man's choice. That has nothing at all to do with the God of Revelation who overcame, whose people overcome by the blood of the Lamb. So these are the accused, they are overcomers, and they are assaulted by Satan. So next then is the assault. Satan is cast down to the earth. He's out of heaven and he can't go back there. And so in his anger, he begins an all-out assault. He sends his demons that are right here upon the earth and he sends them out to destroy Israel before they can ever get into the millennial kingdom. Verse 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast under the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And this is what happens in the last days of the tribulation. The last three and a half years are particularly harrowing for Israel. 
And Jesus warned about this in the book of Matthew. In Matthew 24, he said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And the abomination of desolation, there's the Antichrist, and we'll talk about him next week, the A in abomination. But 16, verse 16 says, Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, and let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let them which is in the field return back to, his, to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray... Pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of this world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And so here is the all-out relentless attack against Israel. It's during this time that those two witnesses that we read about in chapter 11 are, are testifying. And this is the time that the Antichrist tries to kill them without success. And those two men preach until time, uh, till God sees fit to wind things down. And then, of course, as we've read, uh, in the end, God allows them to be martyred. But do you remember what happened three and a half days after that? They were caught up to God. They ascended into heaven. Now, we want to look then at what God does for Israel. They're the chosen people of God, and it's God's full intention for them to be reestablished in the kingdom. And so then, there is... The asylum. Uh, Revelation 12, verse 14. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and a times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And so the woman is taken into a place of safety. Now this is, of course, symbolic language. The woman is Israel, and the wings of a great eagle speak of deliverance. And this is really Old Testament-type language for Israel. Now, let me just give you a couple of places where this is used. Exodus 19.4. Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Isaiah 40, verse 31. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And so this is a picture of deliverance from enemies. So God's going to put his protective hand upon Israel uh, so that uh, Satan cannot destroy the nation. And so God takes them and he hides them in the wilderness. Now nobody knows exactly where this is, that they're hidden. Uh, Some have suggested that Israel will be taken to the city of Petra in, in Jordan. It's a pretty popular opinion. It's a reclusive place, and we have a picture of that. And uh, some people think that this is the place where God is going to hide Israel. Maybe that's so. I don't know if it is, but I think it would be kind of hard to put thousands upon thousands of Jews there. So I don't really think it matters where God decides to take them because God is going to protect them no matter where they are. Uh, just like he protected the two witnesses. They were out there in the streets of Jerusalem for three and a half years preaching the gospel of Christ. The Antichrist had no power against them. And it very well will be, or could be, uh, will be, that God will protect Israel in the same way that he protected those three and a half witnesses. And so the Antichrist will continue to pursue Israel without success because God is determined to bring them into the kingdom. Verse 15 says, And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away of the flood. 
And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon cast out of his mouth. What does John mean by a flood? And there's a lot of disagreement about this. Some think that this is a literal flood, that Satan causes this, and he attempts to drown the entire nation of Israel. And just as the flood waters come, God opens up the ground and swallows up all of the water. I don't personally believe that he's speaking of a literal flood. And that's because there's so much symbolic language that surrounds everything that we've been talking about. If you've read the Revelation commentary by my dad, uh, he suggests that this is a flood of propaganda. And there are many good people who believe the same. And so this is propaganda against Israel. It's the Antichrist's attempt to try to get all of the world to stand against Israel and to join in the persecution. And that might very well be. I mean, there are enough reminders all around the world of how uh, people hate Jews. Jews are just one of those hated peoples that have ever been upon the face of the earth. And, and many nations have joined in to try to destroy uh, the Jews and completely exterminate them. One of the most haunting places that you could ever visit is Yad Vashem, the, uh, the, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. It's a great complex that's filled with pictures and memorabilia, all kinds of information there about the attempt to exterminate the Jews during World War II. A few years ago, I visited the uh, Nazi death camp at Dachau in Germany, and it's just really a frightening place and just something there to see how how the Jews were so hated and, and the attempts to destroy them. It doesn't take a lot to get people stirred up against Israel. And all you have to do is make a trip to Jerusalem today and you can see it there. You see machine guns in the streets and you see bullet pock buildings because people hate the Jews. I have this picture that I took uh, of some young people that were not much older than our own young people right here at the church carrying automatic weapons through the streets of Jerusalem. And I remember when I first gave, showed this picture about a year and a half or so ago, I said that this girl on here reminded me of Mariah for some reason. And I don't know why. I don't know why that is. Uh, maybe it's because to be around Lino, you need to carry a gun or something. I don't know. But, uh, but really, I think that this could be, this could be uh, something like the Old Testament sons of Korah. And you remember the story there, how they were grumbling and complaining against Moses. And God opened up the ground and caused 250 of them to be swallowed up when the ground opened. During the tribulation time, we've read here in the Word of God where it's described many earthquakes that have come. And this might be the case here, that the Antichrist gets his people close to Israel and close to the point that they may be able to kill them, uh, to destroy the nation, and God just opens up the ground with an earthquake and swallows the armies. That very well could be. And so the Antichrist then goes in full force against Israel, but God is going to protect her. God is going to nourish her, and we find that in the 14th verse. And I believe that the illusion there is uh, that God is going to protect Israel in the wilderness, and he's going to make sure that they survive. And, And it's somewhat, I think, like what happened with Israel when they came out of Egypt. There were Two million people or more that came out of Egypt on their way to the promised land. And when they got out into the middle of the wilderness, they thought that God had deserted them. And they began to complain against Moses. And they said, you've brought us out here for nothing but to starve. And we're all going to die right here in the wilderness. 
But that didn't happen because God had intentions for them. He was taking them to the promised land. And so God provided everything that they needed. He sent manna and quail. He sent them water. He took care of them so he was sure that they would get into the land of Canaan. And I think that God may very well do the same thing during the time of tribulation just before the millennial kingdom, that God is going to feed them. The crops and everything have been destroyed, uh, so much destruction of the food supply and fresh water sources are gone, and these people are not going to be able to make it on their own. And so God miraculously provides for the nation of Israel to be sure that they are reestablished in the promised kingdom. So God is not going to let anything happen to them. He promised way back there in the Old Testament that Israel would have a kingdom. Now let's look at verse number 17 and then we'll be through tonight. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the main body of Israel is hidden away and they are protected by God. And so Satan is really angry now. He was unsuccessful at the rapture. He was kicked out of heaven. He was impotent against the woman. Nothing he could do against Christ. And so now he turns his attention to those that he can get at. And this is the remnant. Most likely, this is the 144,000 who came from the 12 tribes of Israel. And they are the ones who were the great witnesses or will be the great witnesses during the tribulation period. And they're the ones that, through their testimony, caused many of the uh, people of Israel and many Gentiles as well to turn to Christ. And these are going to be martyred uh, before the millennial kingdom. And they'll be in heaven when that takes place. And they'll come back with God, come back with Christ when he appears the second time uh, in the second phase of his second coming. So Satan goes to war against them, and eventually they're martyred for Christ. But there's one thing we know, and that is that death is never the end for a Christian. Verse number 11 says that they loved not their lives unto death. God's people do not hold on to this life at any cost. And the reason that we don't is because we know that God has given us eternal life. He's promised that he's going to resurrect this body. So we need not fear what happens to us. We need not, need not fear losing our lives for God's sake because he's promised that all of his people are going to be gathered to him again. So what we have then is the protection of the blood of the Lamb. We have the all-sufficient blood. And I hope you understand how truly powerful the blood of Christ is. It never fails. What God intends for it to do, it will always do. Not one drop of Christ's blood is wasted or is ineffectual. So I just love these kinds of things in Revelation. I love it because it teaches that historically accurate Baptist doctrine that we are so fond of. And it's a great story that we have here. As I said, it's not over though. I mean, this is the beginning of the persecution. Verse 13, or chapter 13 rather, goes on and speaks about the career of the Antichrist. And we're going to spend quite amount of time speaking about him and about his rise and his popularity and his power and all the things that he's able to do against the people uh, joining or joining together the people of this world against the people of God. So we'll talk about that over the next few weeks. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we're thankful tonight for the message that we receive from the book of Revelation. And we see, Lord, that you are powerful, that you are the one who causes us to overcome, that the blood of the Lamb is the strength, that is the supply, it is the everlasting power that we need in order to live forever.
and to conquer this world with you. So, Lord, we just pray that you would bless us and help us to stand for your truth and understand that you are the coming king. We need not fear anything that happens to us because we're going to live forever with you. Bless us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.